You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm all right. How you doing? I'm well. How's your health? My health? My health is pretty good. Good. I'm just wondering because uh, my son just got hand, foot, and mouth disease this past week. Very common. Very common childhood disease. So common that it. your children just had it a couple of weeks ago. It's been going all over town, so it was really any number of places that he could have contracted that you disease. You think he picked it up from some random? Your, your son goes to daycare, does he not? He goes to a small daycare. There are only several children there. None of them have hand, foot, and mouth disease. Oh, they do now. Well, yeah. I mean, now, yes. They have a strain of hand, foot, and mouth disease that originated with your children. Look, don't try and paint it like my kids were patient zero on this. They got it from their, like my daughter got it from preschool. Well, I mean, where it came from before the the inoculator who brought it into my house. Did I use that word correctly? No. Probably not, no. Uh, it's none of my business, none of my concern what happened before that. I look, it's prehistoric history as far as I'm concerned. I look forward to where it's going to go next. That's what I'm excited about. Well, I've, I've got a little touch of it. A little touch of the... It's very mild in adults, as I believe you told me. Well, I had heard that it's either mild in adults or it's a real pain in the ass. And for me, it was fairly mild. Just just enough to be annoying. Yeah, that's what uh, I've got. Yeah. Just enough to be annoying is how I would describe it. Don't worry about it. Common childhood disease. We've got new music this week to uh, play between rounds from new friend of the podcast, Fort Worth, Texas music producer, and I think DJ, The Fifth Element. He reached out to us and offered to let us use some of his tracks on the show, which was awfully nice of him. So frankly, we let him go ahead and upgrade us. So uh, we're going to be busting out some tracks from him, probably one at a time over the next few weeks and then moving forward. So thanks to him. And if you like what you hear this week, you can check out all of his social medias, facebook.com slash the fifth element, Twitter at the fifth element, soundcloud.com slash the fifth element official. That's the with an A and the number five okay. in fifth element. I'm starting to get a picture of what we're dealing with here. The songs are good. The songs are really good. It I'm seems excited. Like a, seems like a nice guy. Three rounds this week, as usual, in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, we've got specialty hashtags, but do we have any actual excitement for UFC 202? And in round number two, this weekend's pay-per-view co-main event is Glover Tashira versus Rumble Johnson, and yes, you're right, that is very depressing. And in round number three... If in the UFC in 2016, your comeback isn't real until you put yourself into the USADA testing pool. So, hey, George St. Pierre, we see you standing there. All that plus just saying stuff, are you fucking kidding me? And Sir Nigel Longstock is going to stop by to play a little Master Tweet Theater. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Stephen Donnelly, who writes, So Baby J. Penn announces he's returning and gets matched with perennial jobbers Dennis Seaver and then Cole Miller. The fight gets pulled for a USADA violation, and now BJ gets matched with Ricardo Lamas. Number one is this punishment, and number two, 
Why are we doing this nonsense? Well, I think if I can answer the second part first, uh, it seems like the reason we're doing this nonsense is because BJ Penn insists on us doing this nonsense. And from the UFC's perspective, we're doing this nonsense because, hey, as long as BJ Penn wants to fight, you know there are some people out there who are still going to pay to see it, even though they'll probably feel sad afterwards. Who are those people at this point, man? Just gluttons for punishment, I guess. Unless you're doing it because you really, really don't like BJ Penn. <laughs> okay. But like, I, would, I would assume if you are out there at this point wanting to watch BJ Penn conduct himself in a mixed martial arts bout, you must be some variety of BJ Penn fan. And it seems like, especially now with this new matchup against Ricardo Lamas, you're just setting yourself up to have a bad time. Well, you know, that is interesting. I wouldn't go so far as to say that this is punishment, the reasoning behind the matchup. But you do have to raise an eyebrow when the first bout announcement we hear is, all right, he's going to fight Dennis Seaver, a fight that feels like, let's get BJ Penn a win. Let's get him back in there in the win column against somebody whose name you've at least heard before. And then, you know, after... All the changes take place, some of them totally not his fault, some of them his fault. Then he gets matched up with Ricardo Lamas, which kind of feels a little more like, I don't know if the UFC heard the complaints the first time around and said, all right, he is BJ Penn, you got to throw him in there with somebody legit and let the cards fall where they may. And sounds like a good deal for Ricardo Lamas and not such a great deal for BJ Penn. Yeah, Ricardo Lamas, he's 34 years old now. He's 3-3 three and three in his last six fights. But we should point out that those three losses are Jose Aldo, Chad Mendes, and then most recently to Max Holloway at UFC 199. He's still cleaning up on dudes like Dennis Bermudez and Diego Sanchez. So it strikes me as sort of a tough matchup for BJ Penn. Uh, and you're right to say that uh, it's it you know, it's probably going out too far on a limb to strictly say that this is a punishment. But... At the same time, there's just there's a whiff of, well, what what the fuck are we gonna do with this guy now? Kind of matchmaking to this. Yeah, well, and I guess you know credit to the UFC that if we are gonna have BJ Penn, former lightweight and welterweight champion BJ Penn, come back in here and do the damn thing, then he ought to be fighting somebody's. You know, you ought to be putting him in there the kind of fights where instead of just trying to slow play it and milk the last few dollars you can get out of BJ Penn's career and legacy, you should be throwing him in there with somebody who will help us determine, should he be here? Uh, and Ricardo Lamas fight does that. Yeah, is there any chance that 37-year-old BJ Penn shows back up looking pretty good? I mean, we have a tendency to think of him as just being done like dinner, and mostly that's because he showed up to fight Frankie Edgar in July of 2014, looking like a ghost of his former self. But like, you know, his last his last three fights, all of which are losses, were Frankie Edgar, Rory McDonald, and Nate Aaron, Nick Diaz. Uh, so he's fighting at welterweight against high-level guys in two of those fights. And then, you know, to come down to, to 145 and fight old man Frankie Edgar, like, that's nobody's idea of a walk in the park. So, like, do we leave the door open at all for the possibility that BJ Penn might might still be pretty good at fighting? The one thing that makes me want to leave the door open, or the one thing that makes me want to push the door open the widest, is the fact that he's been training with Greg Jackson. Because that's one of the things that we always said about BJ Penn, even in his prime, was that you know he, he didn't train hard enough, or that he was too often the boss of his own training camp, and just kind of calling his own shots and doing it the way he wanted, and that was one of the things that might have prevented him from reaching his full potential. If he's over there at Greg Jackson's training with those guys under those coaches, then I think there's more reason to think that if there's anything left in there, that they're going to get it out of them. Uh, so that's what gives me a little bit of hope. And, it, you know, that's kind of, I guess, all you really need 
to convince us to give it one more shot. Um, but if you go out there and you just get beat down by Ricardo Lamas, and then you have to go and do the same exact thing that you did last time when you lost to Frankie Edgar, where you were talking about how you just had to find out for yourself and you got beat up. Now you know. Man, it's it's going to be a rough night for everybody to sit around and watch that. Yeah, October 15th, we assume that this is the, the main event of Fight Night 97 from the Philippines. Just like BJ Penn versus Ricardo Lamas from the Philippines at a fight night in the middle of October has a very weird feel to it. Makes you feel weird? Makes me feel a little weird. I, I, I have to admit. Well, you got some time to come to terms with it. Or just forget it's happening, one or the other. That too. Next question this week comes to us from Mike Morgan, who writes, So it's been about a year since the UFC implemented its new drug testing policy. What were your expectations before beforehand? Have you been surprised by the quantity or quality of offenders? Has the sport changed? How has the sport changed, if at all? So, yeah, we are uh, we're knee-deep in the USADA era at this point, trudging forward in the UFC. Uh, there have been some like notable exceptions, I guess you could say. The one that comes immediately to mind is Brock Lesnar, uh, who rolled in having been granted an exemption for a four-month testing period, uh, fought at UFC 200 against Mark Hunt, won, and then immediately tested positive for uh, banned substances, uh, much to, I guess, the surprise of no one, except maybe, I guess, Mark Hunt, uh, his chagrin, maybe not his surprise. Yeah, but he, he uh, called that one a little bit. So you so you got that as like a really uh, high profile screw up, I guess you might call it, to the USADA uh, era. The the most things about how this is operating are still not fully uh, transparent enough for my liking. I don't know that you will ever get to that stage when when you're dealing with the UFC. But I'm gonna say cautiously, lukewarmly positive endorsement of the USADA era so far from me. Yeah, I, I would say the same thing. The one thing, if, if there's been a big surprise for me, it's that I'm surprised at how many people have A, gotten caught based on their own admissions, like in filling out forms when the tester shows up and not realizing, oops, you just told them something that kind of instantly got you in trouble. Uh, and B, how many people have been popped for things kind of along those same lines that are not what we thought the USADA era was really going to be about going after, you know, stuff like over-the-counter supplements or, you know, supplement contamination that's actually then proved later on where, you know, it's not just the old uh, contaminated creatine defense that seems like a, an easy dodge out of a steroid, uh, a failed t steroid test, but something where they say, hey, this is the supplement I took, and you saw it actually says, yeah, we, we checked that out, and you're right. That It surprised me how often that has happened, though maybe it shouldn't have, um, or just surprised how often... People have gotten caught for stuff that's not the super serious dudes just sticking steroids in their ass kind of stuff that we expected. Um, there's been more of that than I thought there would be. Are you, I mean, uh, percentage-wise, you're still talking about a fairly low number of UFC fighters testing positive. Uh, and I think that the, like the, the horror story of some people's expectations for what was going to happen when they brought this in was that everybody was on steroids and everybody was going to test positive. Uh, so are we dealing with an era or are we dealing with a reality where it turns out uh, it, the, the people like the performance enhancing drug scourge in mixed martial arts was not as bad as maybe we feared that it would be, or people are just beating the test. I guess there's no way for us to know, but like, 
I mean, the doomsday prophecies thought that a lot more people were going to end up just getting immediate two-year bans for for PEDs. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know exactly what the explanation for that is. I would think that it's probably a little bit of a lot of different things. And for one thing, you know, we talk, we want to talk about high-profile failures, and we'll, I'm sure we'll discuss this more when we get into t- talking about light heavyweights in the UFC. You know, there's the John Jones situation, uh, which still has yet to be resolved. That's about as high-profile as you can get. Yeah. So there have been some stuff like that, especially stuff that would have never happened without USADA being out there doing out-of-competition testing. Uh, but it's possible that, A, a lot of people overestimated the number of MMA fighters using PEDs, especially how many times we've heard fighters be like, everybody's on steroids except me. A lot of people seem to have right. that viewpoint. Yeah. And I believe that they're basing it in something because they know other fighters. Uh, it's also possible, too, that, B, uh, some guys, when they heard USADA was getting involved in this, got scared and got off some stuff. Yeah. And we've seen... You know, we've seen those accusations thrown around. Look at this guy. He doesn't look the same uh, post-USADA. And it's not because he's been caught doping. It's just you know because when USADA came in, the implication there is that he got worried and he got off whatever he was on and his physique and or performance suffered. So I think that that's probably happened too. And also, there's that chance that some people are beating the tests or getting lucky for now. Um, you know, because some of these people, you know, you see some guys that have been tested – Four times, and then you see other people been tested once or twice. I mean, it's a big roster, and it, not everybody is getting hit with the same frequency of tests. I guess the best case scenario is that people got scared and got off got off PEDs, right? Like that's you know exactly what, what you want. That must that's exactly what you people. want. Like, yeah. You want a deterrent. Exactly. Maybe it's working. Who knows? Next question this week comes to us from Elliot Dunn. Who writes, with UFC coming back to England with a pay-per-view event, normally I'd be excited. The Bisping-Henderson fight is fun and whatnot, but why, oh why, has the UFC decided to stick this on at a 3 a.m. local time? Seriously, imagine going to an arena and leaving at 6 or 7 in the morning. I don't think you could pay me. Oh wait, what's that you say? They've filled the main card with fights like Adriano Martins versus Leonardo Santos and Yuri Alcantara versus Brad Brad Pickett, I'm fine. I don't fancy going. Only a wild man would buy tickets for this. Means a shit anyway. He, wild he man. does. I appreciate his discretion, though. I just want to know why you think the UFC has pulled this usual fight night worthy bullshit and is starting it at three in the morning local time. It's not even like starting it at man. We could really do with some punctuation in this. It's not like starting it at one could be that bad for us audiences. It doesn't sit okay with me, but okay, whatever. We know what he's getting at here. Uh, yeah, this is weird, right? We're going over across the pond for Bisping, uh, Henderson. It's going to be a pay-per-view event. So we're starting it at three o'clock in the morning, uh, in England. So we can put it on at the, I assume the normal time here in the United States. Uh, but I guess we're probably just dealing with demographics here. The UFC knows where its bread is buttered and knows who's going to want to buy this pay-per-view. If it thought that the most people in the world who were going to buy this pay-per-view and therefore earn the UFC the most money were in England, I think you would probably see it at a different time. Uh, but this is just the time when UFC pay-per-views happen, right? Which is 8 p.m. in the, uh, in the one true time zone here in America in the mountain time zone. Uh, so I guess we shouldn't be totally surprised that the, that they are doing this, although it sure does appear to stink for, for local fans there in England. Yeah. It kind of seems like a situation of wanting to have it both ways. You want to throw Michael Bisping on there, uh, defending his title in England. So you get that, 
that big appeal from the fans there, but then you also want to be able to sell it at the same premium prices back here. Uh, and so you kind of settle on a solution that is not necessarily ideal for anybody. And I agree, though, that why why would it be that bad if you bumped a UFC pay-per-view start time a little earlier? I mean, I, I'm no, just... I think they absolutely should move them earlier. Like You mean just in, in general, so in, you can go to in bed? In general, yeah. <laughs> Pay-per-views and fight nights. I just don't, I mean, I'm sure that they've looked at the numbers and they, I believe they tried this before, right? A pay-per-view, and I think it was from England or, or you know, where they, I can't remember which one it was. I'm sure somebody's going to immediately tell me with their encyclopedic memory of MMA events. And the internet. Yeah. Uh, but one where it was like a pay-per-view if you wanted to watch it live in the afternoon here. And then maybe after that, they showed it free on Spike, like at the normal start time, something like that. Uh, and it, I don't think it did very well, but, I don't know. It just seems to me like, yeah, you could you could start it maybe a little bit late, but not actual like three in the goddamn morning uh, for the local crowd. You could make it a little bit of an earlier, like a late afternoon, early evening kind of pay-per-view here, and maybe it'd make some more people happy. I don't know. It, well, yeah. I mean, to do it this way, it just it does feel weird to even have it in England, right? Like, I you, you do want to go over there and, and let Michael Bisping defend his belt in his home country, but at the same time, like... If it feels like you're going to slap the local fans in the face, as Elliot Dunn seems to uh, indicate that that's what it feels like, like, man, just do it in Vegas or something, you know, like, I don't really see the point of, of trying to have it in, in England if if this is the way you're going to play it. If you are Dan Henderson, who's like, what, 65 years old, how do you play this? How do you get ready for this for this middle of the night fight time? You gotta, I assume you gotta get there, you gotta get there early and adjust your body clock, right? To be ready to, maybe Dan Henderson doesn't do this. Maybe he just rolls out of bed and goes down and fights. Who knows? But like, this seems like a totally shitty assignment to like try to recalibrate, recalibrate your body clock to fight in the middle of the night. Yeah. It does, especially considering Dan Henderson's age. We know how the bedtimes can get yeah when you get yes. up there a little bit earlier and earlier and you, you do confront that age-old problem better to just stay up all night for something that's in the middle of the night or better to go to sleep and then get up i don't know man i think my answer on that has changed the older i've gotten because i used to be a stay up all nighter and these days if i'm if i'm not engaged in some very interesting partying going on to help me stay motivated to stay up all night long man i'm gonna get that sleep I'm going to get I'm going to get that sleep, set the alarm for you know, midnight, give yourself a chance to get all the way woken up, get into your warm up, then roll out there and do the damn thing. Yeah, it seems like Dan Henderson you might have just as good of a chance that he's just going to set the alarm for like 15 minutes before he's supposed to be there. Maybe sleep in his Reebok jumpsuit. For all we know, that's what he does anyway. That's true. That's true. <laughs> now, last question this week comes to us from Ethan Andrewd. Do you think he meant Andrews and just hit the wrong key here? Uh, maybe it's a storied family name. Yeah, Ethan Andrewd of the uh, of the Buffalo Andrews. Is there a reason fighters are calling for super fights and money weight fights instead of asking for a bigger cut of the regular sized fight profit that's been there all along? Is it a contract thing, i.e. pay is a fixed percentage, so the only way to make more for yourself is to make more for everyone? Uh, this is actually kind of an interesting question because it does – put its finger on on a, a big time current movement 
uh, at the highest level of, of MMA for guys to try to call out the most lucrative matchups for themselves. And I guess Ethan Andrewd is, uh, is asking why not just ask for a bigger percentage, uh, for a regular fight, which <laughs> I, it was not a, an approach that I'd thought of before, but I see his point. I guess that like asking for a higher profile fight is probably going to better be better for you all the way around. But it also strikes me as maybe like the path of least resistance. Yes. Like maybe if people have been dealing with the UFC long enough, they know, all right, well, you're just not going to talk them into giving you a bigger percentage of the money. So you better earn more money for them and therefore take more money for yourself. Right. I'm sure that that's a big part of it. Also, just kind of the way fighters have been conditioned to think uh, by dealing with the UFC is that totally reasonable for you to have your eye on the biggest fight you can get or the most lucrative fight you can get. And the UFC will say, yeah, yeah, man, we, we totally support you. We, we love your ambition, even if they we don't want give partners. it to you. That's right. <laughs> We're partners in this thing. Whereas if you tell them, you know what, I would, I would like to keep fighting the same caliber of fights, but I want more of the money you take from them and I want you to take less from it. That's not going to be met with the same enthusiasm from the UFC brass. Um, so yeah, I think fighters have just been kind of trained to think that way. Plus, you're talking about the difference between somebody asking, how do I navigate my career a little better and, and my approach so that I get more money as opposed to like an industry-wide revolution of how do we all get more of what we deserve from this, you know, get bigger slice of the pie. Yeah. I find it I've I find it to be an interesting question though considering like just recently how much heat Tyron Woodley took for at least trying to leapfrog Stephen Wonderboy Thompson with his eye on a fight against somebody like Nick Diaz or or George St. Pierre like people kind of ripped into him for for trying to uh do, quote unquote dodge Wonderboy Thompson like I wonder even though we know it would be a tougher uh, negotiation to to have with the promotion, like I wonder how it would be viewed by fans if he was like, "Oh, I want to fight Wonderboy Thompson, but I want sixty percent of the gate or something like that." You know, I want I want double the percentage that I normally get. I wonder if it would save him face or if people would still react poorly to it. I, you know, I mean, I'm always surprised at the the number of fans who react poorly to fighters wanting more money. Yeah. Um, because I don't, I don't see how you don't realize that these, these guys are the sport that you need them in order to have the sport happen at all. And this is really what you're tuning in to see these people. Uh, and they're not getting a great percentage of it, but I don't know. It seems like a lot of people either don't or refuse to understand that. So who knows how people would react. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast every day. It's fun. It's informative. It's short. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, as of this recording, we are five months and ten days removed from the first time that Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz did the damn thing at UFC 196. By now, we all know how it ended. After quite the turn of events, uh, Nate Diaz wins by rear naked choke in the second round. Uh, we've had this fight once delayed at UFC 200 due to some uh, finagling, I guess you would say, between Conor McGregor and the UFC. But knock on wood, we think we're going to get it this weekend at UFC 202. I guess my opening question for you is, what's your level of hype? Scale I'm, of 1 to 10, how hype? At the moment? How hype are you? I'm in the, I'm in the 8 range right You're now. You're up at 8 already. Yeah. Are you trying to pace yourself? I don't want you to get too hype. I don't want you to reach your peak hype level by like Thursday afternoon. Don't worry about me. Open right? workouts. I don't want you to get too hype for open workouts. I, I think I know how to manage my hype. Thank you very much. I've been doing this a little while. Uh, it's one of those things where also kind of similar to the Jose Aldo Conor McGregor fight by the time it happened, at least 40% of my hype level has to do with getting this over with. Right. Yeah. I feel like surprisingly unhype about the event itself. Like I'm still pretty excited to watch Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor do the damn thing over again. Uh, UFC 202 is not doing a, a ton for me. Uh, and, uh, I guess I'm, I'm just kind of interested to see how this, this fight goes down. The overall level of hype has surprised me a little bit. It hasn't seemed like, it has reached the fever pitch that I think we all thought that it might, at least not yet. I guess there's a few days left before the event. Certainly nothing uh, approaching what we got before Conor McGregor, Jose Aldo, like that. Uh, I guess maybe it's more difficult to be Conor McGregor after a dude chokes you out. Like, it's more difficult to to like turn the crank and get the hype machine fired on all cylinders. The shtick doesn't work quite as well so after, if, after you've done the old tap, tap, tappy. Right. So if you'll notice, like most of the hype for this fight is about Conor McGregor and other people. Like if you, I just Googled Conor McGregor before we came on here. Here, here are the top two returning headlines under news. The top one is Conor McGregor, quote, as soon as Floyd Mayweather gets my money, we can fight. So we're still doing that thing. Oh, good. Unfortunately. And the number two headline is Conor McGregor, colon, why UFC star makes perfect wrestling heel. Okay. So that one's from Rolling Stone. Uh, the first one was from Fox Sports. I, so I assume we're talking more about McGregor's uh, baiting of the entire WWE roster, like we talked about a little bit on last week's show. Not a ton of actual hype between Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz, though. Not yet. But I still feel like we're... I don't feel like it's going to be a tough transition to get us there. And I think, too, though, that it, this fight does present interesting questions that I want to see answered. And that's really I, mostly what I ask for from these fights is, does it feel like we're going to find out something that matters? You know, whether it's who's going to be who's the best middleweight in the world or whatever, or, you know, who, who's the, the greatest all-time light heavyweight. I, I, as long as you give me some kind of compelling thing where... Uh, there's going to be a pass-fail test, and we're going to wake up on Sunday morning knowing something we didn't know before. That is the, what this is really about, I think, for the most part. And this one, I think it has that. If you can tell people, like, hey, we don't know exactly what happened with that first Conor McGregor-Nate Diaz fight, even though we kind of do. Uh, there was enough weirdness about it, about the, the late changes, all that stuff. We... You know, we want to see what kind of adjustments a guy like Conor McGregor can make after a fight like that. We also want to see whether Nate Diaz, if he's not rolling in straight off of a boat in Cabo San Lucas, if he's going to just completely truck him even worse this time. 
I'm interested enough and to see how that plays out, and especially because it'll have ramifications for both guys. You know, Conor McGregor loses, and then he has to think about, am I going back down the featherweight, and am I going to try, you know, something else? What am I going to do with my life? Who am I going to be after that? You know, it can't, you can't go, you really can't go on doing the same exact Conor McGregor stick if Nate Diaz beats you twice, uh, and you're 0-2. You know, but, and for Nate Diaz, if you win, and he's he's teed it up perfectly by saying, like, hey, the UFC better hope that I lose because I'm going to be running this shit if I win. I'm really excited to see what him running that shit would look like. Uh, you know, or, like, alternately, I would be interested to see how both guys respond if it goes the other way. So I think that in itself and the promise that, okay, we're going to get this bit of weirdness done and then we're just going to be able to kind of go back to somewhat normal business, hopefully, in – where we are all each fighting each other in our weight classes, that's enough of an appeal for me. Yeah, and the the first fight was strange enough that it does feel like there is a potential that the second one could go differently, you know? Uh, Conor McGregor was kind of having his way early in the fight, and then it seemed like uh, the weight maybe caught up with him a little bit. It seemed like the the power in his punches didn't affect Nate Diaz at 170 pounds as much as they certainly affected a dude like Jose Aldo at 145 pounds. Uh, and, and McGregor let himself get suckered into a fight against Nate Diaz, which as we've talked about on the show, people have said is more difficult not to do than you might think that it is. Uh, and so, you know, McGregor kind of slowed down, started to get beat up, ended up shooting for what turned out to be an ill-advised takedown and, and, and got choked out. But the thing that we know about Conor McGregor and the thing that we know about his coach, John Kavanaugh over in Ireland is that these are both pretty smart dudes with pretty high fight IQs. So it'll be interesting from my perspective to see what, if anything, Conor McGregor can change headed into this second fight. Yeah. You would think that the 170 pounds wouldn't be as big as a, of a surprise to him. You would think that he would mentally and maybe strategically be a little bit more prepared to the game that Nate Diaz is going to bring to the fight. And it'll be interesting to see what Conor McGregor can do to kind of counteract that because it seems like Nate Diaz just brings Nate Diaz stuff to the table. The guy's been in the UFC for a really long time. This was certainly the biggest win of his career, but at the same time, uh, we don't expect him to show up, you know, looking like a different person at 31 years old, especially because he didn't have to change anything after this fight. He won the first fight. So you're not looking at a complete rebuild. Uh, I don't know, man. Like when you think about it in your mind brain, how do you think about this, this fight playing out? I think that the, one of the big mental game plan changes that Conor McGregor and his team are going to have to make and that they should make at least is you're going to have to start thinking about being in there with Nate Diaz for five rounds, which I don't think Conor McGregor was doing. I think he'd gotten so used to going out there, uh, laying that left hand on people and knocking them out in the first or second round and putting people away for fairly quickly. I mean, after you knock out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds, you're you might be forgiven if you start thinking that you have somewhat superhuman knockout power. And then going up there fighting not only a bigger guy, but fighting a Diaz brother who, you know, they can get hit in the head a few times and not seem to really care too much about it. That probably exposed some flaws in that way of thinking and that way of approaching a fight. And so, you know, he, he clearly got tired. He expended too much energy. He thought he was going to put Nate Diaz away and he was landing on him pretty well in that first round so you can understand how maybe you get that emotional rush you think like all right 
I can hit this guy. I'm going to put this guy away. And then it's midway through the second round and he's slapping you in the face and then making a face like, oh, did you not like that? Because here it comes again. Like I can see how that might exhaust you like mentally and physically. So I think that's got to be the big change is you got to go in there planning to be there with that guy all night long. Yeah, it's interesting how that can affect a fighter. You look at his record and and seven out of eight of McGregor's previous eight fights, all of which were wins leading up to this Nate Diaz thing, were like first or second round knockouts. And especially like in the UFC, he had put together that string over uh, Diego Brandao and Dustin Poirier and Dennis Seaver and Chad Mendes and Jose Aldo right in a row. And coming immediately off that 13 second knockout of Jose Aldo, it's almost like you get conditioned to that happening and you become less of a multidimensional fighter almost like you go out there looking for the knockout. And like you said, you couldn't, couldn't do that against Nate Diaz at 170 pounds. Interesting. I think after that loss that Conor McGregor would come back and insist on another fight at 170 pounds. I mean, as, at least that, as we've been told yeah. that that was the case. Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know why you would do it at that weight again, unless somebody insisted on it. Uh, it just doesn't, there's no reason to have these guys fight at 170 unless one guy has a, has a point to prove. Uh, do you think it's possible if Conor McGregor wins this fight, if he beats Nate Diaz, are we looking at another situation where Conor McGregor and the UFC might get into a promotional showdown? Because it's interesting that, you know, Dana White has already come out a couple of times now and said that win, lose or draw Conor McGregor's going back down to featherweight after this. He's already said Tyron Woodley is going to fight Stephen Thompson during a pretty recent uh, media appearance. Tyron Woodley seemed to have some other thoughts on right. that. And so does Conor McGregor. Frankly, <laughs> like Conor McGregor would only go as far as to say, we'll see. Although he does seem to have no problem with tossing out threats toward featherweights every time he gets the opportunity. Uh, I guess if you were a smart businessman, you would do that no matter what your future plans were. But if Conor McGregor wins this fight over Nate Diaz, I would think conventional wisdom would say he's sticking around either at lightweight or at welterweight just to chase the big money fights. So I wonder, you know, if he is victorious here, if he's going to have another standoff with the UFC. You know, that that is one of the fun outside elements to this fight beyond just the actual martial arts matchup. Is it seems like no matter who the winner is, you are not going to be able to tell him shit. <laughs> he's going to do whatever he wants to do. Like, and he's going to use that win as leverage in order to do that. Um, and that's kind of awesome, I guess, because it does set up like some sort of future clash with the UFC, but also both those guys have a different kind of, but essentially the same brand of stubbornness when it comes to that stuff. Uh, and I don't know, at least, at least part of me likes to see fighters like that willing to stand up for themselves and, and, flex their power a little bit because we've seen the opposite for so long. I think they recognize that about each other. That's kind of the vibe. You I've think gotten. game recognized game a little bit. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of the vibe I've gotten from these two guys since the start, since they had that first like somewhat crazy uh, press conference in the UFC gym in Torrance or whatever, where uh, Dave Schaller brought the disciples of apocalypse from WWE as his security guys. Uh, they just seem like, and the Conor McGregor said like he, he said, I like a little Nate or whatever he said at that, at that press conference, like they're still gonna, they're still gonna razz each other a little bit, but it does seem like they are on the same page promotionally. Uh, we just talked about what happens if Conor McGregor wins this. It's, and the, like you said, it's almost as interesting to try to figure out what happens to Nate Diaz here, depending on the outcome of this fight. Previous to this, his biggest win was who? Like Donald Cerrone? 
maybe, at UFC 141 back in 2011. Then he goes out there and beats Conor McGregor in March. All of a sudden, he's got the world in his hands, and uh, he's been able to distance himself a great deal from what I would say his previous public perception was, was as kind of like a middling lightweight, right? right? Like he was the lesser Diaz brother coming into this fight. Then he beats Conor McGregor. And all of a sudden, Nate Diaz is like the, 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 the raddest thing since sliced bread. Well, and not only the raddest thing since sliced bread, but you realize once you put it, have to put him on these late night talk shows and you have to make him the focal point of these embedded episodes and stuff. Wait a minute. He handles this a little bit better. He still maintains the Diaz lack of fuck giving. But also manages to do it in a way that is a little more, I don't want to say fan and media friendly, but yeah. Like he's gonna, he's gonna still talk the same kind of straight up 209 bullshit in those interviews, but he's actually gonna show up for the interviews reliably in order to do it. You kind of realize like, wait a minute. Maybe maybe Nate was the Diaz brother we were waiting for all along. Well, yeah, I remember thinking that. I don't remember if you were at this UFC, but when Nate Diaz, or when Nick Diaz fought, uh, BJ Penn. I went to that event when I was working for ESPN and I remember at the weigh-ins seeing Nick come onto the stage. Nate was with him, like operating as his second. And you know, as usual, they comes on stage with his work boots and his jeans and everything on. It'll take and a while to get all that off. I remember hit watching their interactions and I remember Nate Diaz like telling him where to stand, like where to put his stuff, like directing him toward the scale, telling him he had to go over for a face-off. And I remember like at the time thinking, oh, wait a second. It seems like Nate Diaz is the one who like has a better handle on what's happening here. He seems like, if anything, the more reasonable and on the ball Diaz brother. Maybe that's been borne out in front of us in the wake of this big victory. Yeah. You know, and I guess when we talk about this one, like either way it goes, seeming like somebody is going to be in a, or feel like they're in a driver's seat with the UFC. I also wonder either way it goes about the loser. Because Conor McGregor does – a lot of that stuff is going to shatter for him. A lot of that image is going to shatter if he goes out there and he gets beat twice by Nate Diaz. you know. And for Nate Diaz, it'd be kind of heartbreaking to see him go out there, lose the second fight, especially if, it, if it's a very clear victory for Conor McGregor, and then to have this kind of look back as the moment in the sun for Nate Diaz and then it was all over. Yeah, it would pretty be pretty easy, I think, for Nate to revert back to that guy that he was before, uh, perception-wise. And I think for Conor McGregor, you're right. You can't go on being uh, the suit-wearing Irish dandy if you if it it is proven out that you're like not as good as you keep pretending to be. As of this juncture, I'm looking at the odds right now. Conor McGregor just a very slight favorite at minus 125. Nate Diaz at minus 105. So pretty close to a pick'em. So it seems like. Not even the odds makers know exactly what's going on. Who are you going to pick? I don't want you to tip your hand if maybe Dan Stupp is listening to this. Well, we already, I already turned in my picks. Oh, okay. And by the way, I'm still sitting in first place in the staff picks over really? MMA Junkie. Yeah. So listen up out there, potential co-main event podcast bettors. I'm picking Nate Diaz. Interesting. Interesting. I think mainly just because I like his ability to absorb punishment and keep coming back at you hard. And I think that... You're not going to just knock that guy out. You're going to have to be there in the cage with him for five rounds if you're Conor McGregor, most likely. And that's, that's a lot to ask against a bigger dude like that. Yeah, I think I lean slightly toward McGregor just because of the stuff I said earlier. He seems like he's the kind of guy who's going to clean up the stuff that went wrong for him in the first fight and come out with a better game plan. But, I mean, 
you do raise valid points. It's going to be interesting to see how he would handle 25 minutes if he had to do it that way and if he could just overcome the size and, and weight difference, you know, no matter what the game plan is. But we'll find out on Saturday. Yes, we will. We hope, knock on wood, which is a good thing about this sport. Right now, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to play a little Master Tweet Theater. It's been a couple weeks since we've seen him, so that's going to go ahead and start right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am well. Okay. I'm like a child who has fallen down a well. All right. That sounds more appropriate. Uh, Do you come to us with a theme this week? I do, sir. I do. The theme is endorsements. All right. You know that. That seems like another one that you would think would be easy to stick to. With Twitter. So far, it seems like the only ones he sticks to are when the theme is so broad that it basically boils down to something somebody wrote on the internet. Well, I mean, this one, though, like you, 60% of fighter tweets are endorsements of some kind or another. And the other 40% are just angry yelling? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. You know, sirs, Master Tweet Theater is like making love. All the fun is in the deviations from what's expected. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Well, I'm having fun. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Lucky Sailor brand condoms. Lucky Sailor, 90% as effective as name brand condoms, but at only half the price. My father used them, my grandfather used them, and apparently his father did too. Lucky Sailor, it's the name you and many women trust. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad that's out of the way. <clears throat> Another $6 in the bank, sir. Yeah, cha-ching. <clears throat> Tweet the first. Why does anyone like Captain Crunch? It wrecks your mouth. But let's be honest, no one stops. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know if even this qualifies as an endorsement. No, this is this is the opposite of, a, of an endorsement. It kind of gets there at the end a little bit, but... It seems like on the very first tweet, Sir Nigel has already undermined his own theme. Yeah, yes. I'm not surprised, motherfuckers. Also, whoever wrote this, I, I must strongly disagree with them because Captain Crunch is awesome. Uh, I'm going to say this feels to me like a Matt Mitrione. Interesting, interesting. Um See, because if, if you let them sit in the milk for a minute, yeah, then they just get soggy. You know what else you can do? If you go down, sometimes if you go down to one of those, like, make pour your own froyo kind of deals where you get to choose your own topics and stuff, some of the classier ones will have Captain Crunch available as a topping. And on ice cream slash frozen yogurt, it's delightful. Juliana Pena. All right. Hmm. Both fine guesses both like to take orders from the captain and both wrong. It is Todd Duffy. Okay. Recent fascination, Todd Duffy. All right. Again. We should be taking notes here. I feel like it's, it wouldn't be too hard for us to get into a scenario where we, the, the Matt Mitrione, Todd Duffy thing is another Rich Franklin, yeah. Randy Couture there situation. Two men who have never been photographed together, as far as I know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're wrong. <laughs> if it was, they were hanging on each other and breathing heavily in round two. <clears throat> Tweet the second. Praying mantises are cool as fuck. 
Just saying. Picture of a praying mantis. Okay, well, now this person is right. Praying mantises are cool as fuck. That's that's just one you can't argue with. And this one actually is kind of an endorsement of yeah, of an insect. Mantises. Yeah. Um. You know what? I'm gonna say poet Philip Baroni. Wow, well, that'd be kind of an unusual tweet for him. But if you got to find an endorsement from him. True. Yeah. But if he posted, it would be like a picture of a praying mantis and the shadow of an enormous penis. Because he does like to do that. <laughs> he does. Cool uh, I'm going to go Leslie Smith. Hmm. Both my guesses. Both likely to put insects near their genitals and both wrong. It is Carlos Condit. Okay. Yeah. Carlos Condit. You know Condit. what? He seems like a bug guy, right? Seems like he could be into praying mantises. I mean, who's not into praying mantises? I mean, if you find out Carlos Condit had a bunch of ferrets at home, you'd be like, yeah, that makes sense, right? <laughs> ferrets? You went right Ferret. from praying mantis to ferrets. Pretty much the same thing. Not insects, but similar okay. style of pet. I feel like there are different kind of people who are into this. Also, really? uh, when, if Leslie Smith finds out what you said about her, she's going to kick you in the head. I mean, maybe she puts it near there as a prank or to accentuate that. I'm just going to eject if, from this. I don't sentence. know if you've noticed this, but Ben likes to use Master Tweet Theater to get other people in trouble. Other people get themselves in trouble, and I just want to make sure everybody knows about it. <clears throat> Tweet the third. If I get in a car accident with someone playing Pokemon Go, I will beat that ass. That feels to me like a Derek Lewis, the Black Beast. That's a really good guess. You're probably right. I'm going to say Demetrius Johnson. Okay. Uh, all right. I think he would be a little more forgiving, actually, of somebody playing Pokemon Go and getting into a car accident. Oh. See, I thought maybe he meant he was playing Pokemon Go. Maybe he will beat that ass at Pokemon Go? I don't know. Is it did a competitive... you notice my dad pronunciation there of Pokemon? <laughs> Very good. It is, it is the Black Beast, yes. Derek Lewis, playing a game for children and preparing to beat that ass. Wait, is he, he's not playing the game, right? No, it's, it's unclear because of course there's no, no punctuation. Although he does put punctuation after Pokemon Go, as uses of English suggest. But it seems like it is someone who is playing Pokemon Go. Not if he gets in an accident while playing okay. Pokemon Go. See, this is how, though you can spot like a Derek Lewis tweet, is not only like a threat that he will beat that ass, but finger on the pulse of, of pop culture. You're giving away your secrets now. I, You know, I want to level the playing field so I don't just keep dominating you at Master Tweet Theater. He saw some kids playing it and thought, wouldn't it be nice to beat a kid? <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. I just slapped a discount code out of dip your car for you. Save 15% on everything. Isn't Rampage Jackson yeah. a dip your car guy? Somebody like that. That's Somebody in Bellator. Yeah. It seems like dip your car is kind of, I still not sure what that is. But I'm going to say Rampage. Yeah, I'm going to say Rampage Jackson. Uh, other Bellator guy, Benson Henderson. Okay. Both fine guesses, both ready to endorse, but no, it is Nate Diaz. Oh, okay. Improbably. Yeah, very improbably. And he, well, he slapped the discount code out of him. That's the key. Damn it. The clue. It was right there also, in front of us, Chad. Clue. Jeez, that, well, that makes me worried that Nate Diaz is starting to realize how to monetize his gimmick too much. And that bothers you? A little bit. Okay. Also, Dip Your Car appears to be a service that puts a peelable paint on your car. So like a short-term paint for your car. I assume it's wildly expensive because only the height of luxury 
uh, could afford something like that. Also, are they literally, like, does a crane grasp my car by the trunk and then just dip it into a vat of peelable paint and they peel it off the windshield and I drive away? You don't have a car. No, nor a crane, sir. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. I relished this one. <clears throat> just got my check from Kickboxer. Kickboxer the film. You'd think. Kickboxer with a capital K. Uh, who's in the Kickboxer remake? I recall hearing about it. Sage Northcutt? I'm going to say Sage Northcutt. That is a very Sage Northcutt-style tweet. No, he would be standing in front of the check with his thumb up, right? No, he's not. Uh... Rich Franklin. (laughs) Okay. Both fine guesses, both very possibly in Kickboxer, and both wrong, and it's Roy Nelson. Ah, oh, damn it, Roy Nelson is in Kickboxer, isn't he? Now we know, I guess. Why is he in the Kickboxer remake instead of the Roadhouse remake? He looks like every guy in Roadhouse. <laughs> That's actually a really solid point. That's what Nigel made. Also, not an endorsement. Saying you just got your check from Kickboxer. He endorses checks, and presumably he wants us to see the movie, although I assume his royalty share is minuscule. You have fucked this one up badly, and it was really easy. Well, Roy Nelson, though, huh? We all love that guy. We still love that guy, right? Well, that's it for Master Tweet Theater. What else you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I just finished wrapping an exciting project about a lady gunfighter who enters a quick-draw competition and doesn't stop talking for even one goddamn second. I see. And what's it called? It's called The Quick and the Deadpool. And what role do you play? I play a sarcastic IT guy who probably knows karate but has never taken any lessons. Well, that was Master Sweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Well, Chad, the co-main event of UFC 202 features a showdown in the division that Chad Dundas once recently called in a despondent late-night despondent late night state to be completely disbanded. Two light heavyweights. I believe I said just shut it down. Just shut it just down. Just shut the whole division and down I wish, if this is what we're doing. I, I wish people could have seen the look on your face just lit up by the laptop screen as you looked at the UFC light heavyweight rankings and considered what they're going to look like if John Jones is out for a long time. And I assume we'll get around to talking about that. And you just shook your head and you said, just shut it down, man. But no, they're not shutting it down. Anthony Rumble Johnson and Glover Teixeira are going to do the damn thing at light heavyweight in the co-main event here in a fight that feels like two guys who... We've seen the ceiling for them, but they're going to go ahead and punch each other in the face in, in a dazzling spectacle of violence anyway. Is that enough for you? The fact that it seems like two guys who really know how to hurt each other are going to do that, even if it doesn't feel like those two guys are the best in the world and we've already seen why. I mean, in a vacuum, yeah, that you could do a lot worse. You could. Than, and at light heavyweight, you will. Yeah, you could do a lot worse than to have that be the situation. I mean, I would say, though, that one of the things that undermines my excitement for UFC 202 all the way around 
is like the state of this card behind Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor. And the biggest indicator that you're dealing with kind of a thin situation here is that you have Anthony Johnson and Glover Tashira as the co-main event. You know, everybody wants to see if Cody Garbrandt can take the next step and beat Tukea Mizuzaki. Everybody wants to see Neil Magny and Lorenz Larkin. That, that shapes up as a fun little fight. But then you get to the actual pay-per-view card and, you know, Rick Story versus Donald Cerrone. Like, I'm not going to complain about that. I'm into like, that. that. That's going to be fine. But other than that, it just seems like we're not getting a lot. And that entire situation, I think, is typified by Anthony Johnson, Glover Tashira, even though a guy like Tashira uh, has won three fights in a row now since his back-to-back losses to John Jones and Phil Davis. Uh, you know, not necessarily over the, the best light heavyweights in the world there, those three victories. But then you got, you know, Anthony Johnson, who uh, has come back from that Lost to Daniel Cormier at UFC 187, which at the time was for the vacant light heavyweight title with back-to-back wins over Ryan Bader and Jimmy Manoa, basically doing what he does best and knocking fools out. Like, this fight will be okay. It'll be fine. Somebody might get knocked out. Somebody and if, probably get knocked and out. And if not, like, you, you might have a 15-minute grinder on your hands. But, like, the thing that makes it disappointing and disagreeable is the idea that, well, these two dudes are just fighting to be the number one contender to fight Daniel Cormier. We've already seen Daniel Cormier beat Anthony Johnson, and we've already seen Glover DeShira lose to John Jones. So, like, without John Jones in the landscape of the 205-pound division, what are we really even doing? God, see, now you've got, you're almost, you've almost convinced me to shut it down. It's so depressing when you start talking about this. Well, and everybody knows I love Daniel Cormier. I think Daniel Cormier uh, is one of the best fighters in the world at any weight. But, you know, he fights Alexander Gustafson at UFC 192, and you pull, with an awesome fight, by the way, you pull 250,000 estimated pay-per-view buys. That ain't great. No. And now you're talking about putting him out there against a guy that he either already beat in Anthony Johnson or Glover DeShiro who is not a guy who lights the world on fire from a pay-per-view by standpoint. It just seems like light heavyweight needs an awful lot of help right now. Now, it might get that help. At least if John Jones's Instagram can be trusted, which oh, I realize it can. I realize it's a it big can. if. I'm sure the post is already deleted uh, at the time of this recording. But he got on there, I believe it was on Instagram, and uh, said that he got some good news regarding his USADA drug test situation and that he expected to be back uh, in the octagon very soon. Now, I guess we're encouraged, or at least it, it's the unstated assumption here is that the good news is we found the tainted supplement or whatever when we were, we're cleared to go ahead and try that defense and might get off with a six-month suspension or something, something far less than the two-year suspension we're originally looking at. Um and that would be good news is that would that if he's able to make that case, make it convincingly and says, aha, here is the silverback, no explode, super, uh, boost powder that I was taking, just got it off the shelf of the GMZ because that's what the, one of the premier athletes in the world, possibly best fighter up walking the planet would do. And I was taking that, throwing it in my morning smoothie. And then we tested it. We found out it's got both the two substances that uh, I believe he tested positive for. USADA says, you know, we got our own carton of silverback, no explode, boost, trust, power, juice. 
and we figure out he's right. Six months, which, you know, he's already served a little bit of that time. If they, they date it to the time of the test and he's back in there. Are you, are you feeling more optimistic suddenly about things in the light heavyweight division? Well, yeah, it's great news from the standpoint that the only thing really going on in the light heavyweight division is John Jones's pursuit of all time greatness short of, you know, the rise of Mirsha Surkinov or, or, uh, Nikita Krilov. Like those are your, like your storylines right there in the, in the light heavyweight division. So yeah, having Jones back seems borderline vital at this point for the health of the division, but this seems like the kind of stain that's going to hang around on his, on his record, does it not? Like, oh, you think Daniel Cormier might bring it up if they were to fight? <laughs> it seems probable that, that he might have something to say about it. But, like, for starters, it's just so hard to believe the tainted supplement defense at this point in the sport, even though we all know that the supplement industry sort of is the Wild West, that it's not very tightly regulated, that companies totally do dump prohibited substances in there so that the word gets around on the street that the shit that they have actually works. It's still, it's still so easy to shrug that off as an excuse. But if they test it and they actually find it, then there's scientific evidence to back up your claim. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there is. But then you just seem stupid for just taking crazy powders from GNC. Yeah. What John knows it's the case. Like you said, what John Jones is doing, taking that kind of supplement to begin with, we have no idea. And number two, I think, you know, John Jones's public persona, like the people who who are looking for a reason to hate John Jones, aren't not necessarily swayed by facts. Okay, I guess I would just argue that of all the stuff, the accusations that have been thrown John Jones's way, the PEDs one is not just not one that has come up a bunch. And you hear stuff, you know, yeah. you hear the rumors yeah. about guys and everybody throwing different accusations at guys, and you never really heard that one about him. So. I don't, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no way that he was actually doing anything there. But, you know, if you can, if you can prove that this stuff that showed up in your system was also found in a, you know, a separately, independently obtained and tested container of the same stuff. And, you know, you can, you can link all the, the parts there of that story. Then I think that gets you. You know, some understanding, some forgiveness. I still think that, you know, we, you would be right to be asked why the hell you're just rolling into a GNC and grabbing some, some like powder that has a picture of a dude with muscles coming out of his ears on the cover. Like that's a legitimate question for people to ask you. But it does, if you can actually make that claim. I, I mean, I, I don't see how people continue to be like, okay, but we still think he's dirty. Well, I would, yeah, and people will still do that because we're talking about John Jones here. Okay. Man. And I'm not saying, I mean, if, hey, if I were Daniel Cormier, yeah, I would probably use that to needle the guy beforehand if we're going to fight again. I'd probably bring some powder to hand to him at the, at the weigh in, uh, you know, just to explain to him that you went ahead and, and vetted this stuff and you know that he has a problem with that. So you're going to go ahead and do him a favor, give him some of that. Um, might have it delivered to his hotel room in the middle of the night. Fun stuff like that. Of course, you're going to do that if you're Daniel Cormier. But I think as far as like asking if there's a, a taint holding, like or a stain on the guy's career, if you can actually make this case and you can prove that you kind of got this stuff in your system stupidly but not intentionally, then I think you do deserve a break. 
All right. Well, the moral of the story is no one cares about Anthony Johnson and Glover Tashira. So let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number three. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, I know, Chad, that by now you must have seen the first episode of the UFC Embedded for, for UFC 202. Yeah, I missed that somehow. But I'll yeah. take your word for it that there is one. There is one. Uh, it features some interesting things. Notably, Conor McGregor getting out on the road with his, his road bike, doing a little cycling to prepare for a fight against Nate Diaz, which I see what you're doing. You're paying attention to the guy who beat you last time, taking up a little bit of his tricks. Uh, but there's also Nate Diaz, of course, working out in a park with his boys, and they all got their shirts off. Uh, and he's talking about kind of the nature of fight promotion. Here's his quote, Chad. i seen Woodley and GSP shaking hands and text messaging. Let's make a fight. That's boring. You just killed the whole thing for our sake. Don't no one want to see that fight no friends set up? Fuck that. Uh, how about me and my guys versus you and your guys? Now that's entertainment. Let's see that. That's good TV and that's real shit. The other guy's setting up fights through text messages. Now that's silly. Mm. Are you fucking kidding me? Nate Diaz just putting it down. That's what I'm talking about, Chad. Any Nate Diaz rant that talks about, you know, how things other people are doing are bullshit, things he is doing are real shit, and then ends with the proclamation, now that's silly. You fucking kidding me, Nate Diaz? You fucking kidding me? That You're is awesome. pretty awesome. That does set the stage for Conor McGregor and his guys to pull up to the park on their road bikes and jump <laughs> off, and then you would have a rumble. That's right, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. However, Ben, if Conor McGregor did that and pulled up on his road bike at the park, I assume before they got into a rumble that he would have to pull off his new eyeglasses before he got engaged in a fight. Uh oh. And so I just want to send and are you fucking kidding me this week out to Conor McGregor's new eyeglasses which I assume are not prescription. I assume that this dude is rolling out there wearing some fashion glasses uh, just for the hell of it, walking out on stage looking vaguely with his beard and his glasses like he's going to deliver the good word from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad in the (laughs) mid-1960s. I can't decide if I'm into it or I'm not into it. Conor McGregor suddenly showing up with fashion eyeglasses. He is the only one of the only fighters that I can imagine wearing fashion eyeglasses you know nate diaz isn't going to come to the press conference like wearing some von miller style glasses that like maybe don't even have lenses in them like (laughs) nate diaz is not doing that so i guess because out of my own inability to decide whether i am pro or con conor mcgregor fashion eyeglasses i'm just gonna give it an are you fucking kidding me me? that's gonna do it for round number two we'll be right back with round number three Ben, George St. Pierre is back in the pool, and I don't mean in the sexy way, like him hanging out at the Palms with a bunch of his admirers. I mean back in the U.S. anti-doping agency, UFC, PED's testing pool, which is as direct a sign as any that a guy who was once quasi-retired is going to return to the octagon As we know, unless he gets the Brock Lesnar special, he's probably going to have to sit out four more months, which puts his return potentially maybe around the end of the year. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the UFC historically has a pretty big pay-per-view event right there at the beginning of the year, at the start of the new year, that you might think the return of the greatest welterweight of all time might fit right in on. 
Uh, I guess people break down in two camps here. People that want to see 35-year-old George St. Pierre come back uh, from his walkabout and people that would uh, rather see him remain on hiatus. Which one are you? You know, I'm usually just in the default category of if you can walk away with a bunch of money and you don't need to do this anymore, please enjoy your retirement and cultivate some other interests and we will remember you fondly. But with George St. Pierre... Maybe I just give him more credit for being a reasonable thinker who is not doing anything impulsively, who seems to be way more analytical, and the way he went about both the retirement slash stepping away and the way he's going about the, re- the return. I, I kind of I can't help but welcome the guy back. I'm, I'd be interested to see what he could do. Uh, I also think that you know him talking i've read this this interview that he had with the uh, bloody elbow i think it was where he talks about his reasoning for how he could have got a usada pass you know the same way brock lesnar did he could have got that exemption to jump right back in there as soon as he wanted to but he felt like it would it would be the wrong thing to do especially as vocal as he was about there needing to be a better drug testing system in the ufc and in mma uh and he wanted to go through it i don't know how you can't support a guy like that uh in at least support him if if he wants to return then how can you tell him no yeah george was certainly ahead of the curve uh drug testing wise pretty much all the way around uh i would also welcome his return at 35 years old depending on how he comes out and looks in the cage we already know that at least according to nate diaz he and tyron woodley are on some silly shit trying to set up a friends fight via text message uh which contrary to nate diaz's belief i would still watch even though if it's just even though it's just some friends fighting and not two big crews showing up at the park to have a rumble taking off their bicycle chains and swinging them around <laughs> yeah somebody's got a baseball bat with a nail pounded through it i would still watch george st pierre and tyron woodley if that's the fight that goes down now ben ever since anderson silva tested positive for, for, for performance enhancers after uh, his fight against nick diaz i would argue to you that i would think i would the george st pierre is my pick for the greatest of all time if George St. Pierre comes back out of retirement and wins the UFC welterweight title again, how do you keep him from the throne of goat status? I I could the only way I could possibly keep him out that throne, Chad, is to wait around to see what John Jones is going to do with the remainder of his career. Uh, because yeah, you're right. After he held it down at welterweight for as long as he did, if he came back, especially in the USADA era and gave us every reason to believe that he was and had always been doing it clean, and he won the welterweight title again, maybe even defended it a couple times. Yeah, you're at that point, you're absolutely the greatest, and no one could really argue with it. Um, I'm interested, though, because in this interview where he talks about why he wants to undergo the testing and, and why he didn't want to uh, just jump right back in with that, what I'm going to go ahead and refer to as the Lesnar rule, uh, where you can get the exemption. He also, he, he made a, uh, and, and he phrased it interesting, uh, where he said, I don't have any fight yet, but it's going to happen now because I'm getting tested. If I'm getting tested, it's for a reason. Uh, where it seems like we hear different things. Like I think Dana White, when just asked about it fairly recently, was like, George St. Pierre is never going to fight again. And he keeps, for a while, it seemed like he was doing this reverse psychology thing, or thought he was, on George St. Pierre, where he was saying, I don't think he'll ever fight again. I don't think he has the drive. I don't think he has the desire to come back and do this anymore. I think he's gone for good. And it felt like, I know what you're doing. You're you're telling him, you know, you're sitting down at the dinner table with your toddler being like, 
you know what? I don't even think you could eat all those meatballs if you wanted to. And that broccoli, there's no way. There's no way you could possibly do that. I'd be so impressed if you did. Uh, but I don't know. Lately, when you hear one thing with George St. Pierre and you hear the UFC president sounding absolutely adamant at, at times that one of the biggest box office draws he ever had, the king of pay-per-view, as he once called him, is not going to come back. It makes me wonder what's going on because especially we've heard even – and George St. Pierre has kind of admitted to this that one of the obstacles is you got to figure out something about the guy's contract because he left a very different UFC than the one he'd be returning to. Sponsors were a big, big business for George St. Pierre. And sure, he's one of those guys that could still get some sponsor money even without having to, to put him on a banner or on his shorts or anything like that. Uh, but it would hurt his bottom line. Uh, the way the sponsor situation works in the UFC now. So he'd have to figure out some kind of contractual solution to that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That It would take some restructuring, I guess. As we know, though, as our uh, understanding of the UFC's financial picture has continued to develop in these you know, last few years, if we can say anything confidently, I think it's that the money is there. It would just need to get moved around a little bit to make it worth George St. Pierre's while uh, – to come back. And as far as his relationship with Dana White is concerned, like not only has it seemed recently like Dana White denying something is the best indication that it's about to happen, but also uh, you know, George has the trump card there. And that is if George St. Pierre calls and tells you he wants to fight on pay-per-view, maybe even in Canada, uh, you let him do that because his pay-per-view numbers have been off the charts when he fights. Like I remember I looked it up one time and like having George St. Pierre fight twice a year in the UFC equated to essentially them doing one extra pay-per-view. That's how many pay-per-views he sold. Uh, so he's going to make them a lot of money. Uh, he's, they're going to have him back no matter how, if he calls and says he wants to do it, probably almost no matter what. I would think that it is probably hard to heal that relationship between the UFC president and George St. Pierre. I was thinking the same thing. After uh, the Johnny Hendricks fight when Dana White kind of went off on George at the press conference. You know, I think, you know, now that we know of his dark place and know of his obsessions, I think we know George St. Pierre kind of a sensitive dude. That doesn't seem like the kind of thing he's going to forget. I don't think uh, you have to be a sensitive dude to get mad about that. that sure. Was, no, I don't think so either. That was one of the more – I just think that's going to stick around in his mind for the rest of his life. It sticks around in my mind. <laughs> I, w I was at that one, and that was one of the – even for Dana White, who is over the top at times, that was one of the, the most unbelievable things I'd ever seen is you know, you had this moment where it was you know going to be a really memorable moment in the UFC. George St. Pierre wins a close decision to retain his title, announces that he's stepping away – uh, and everybody, you know, a part of you instantly wants to go into immediate nostalgia mode. Oh man, George St. Pierre, what, what are we going to be like without George St. Pierre here? Remember all the good times he brought us. And if you're the UFC, remember all the money he brought us. And instead, Dana White shows up to the press conference and yells himself purple, uh, talking about how he couldn't believe anybody would do this kind of thing that George St. Pierre is talking about doing and, and what a terrible move it is and just trashing the guy and even getting asked, uh, by a member of the press. I can't remember who it was saying like, Wait, have you talked to him yet about yeah. what he's, what his plans are, what, what his reasoning is, what he wants to do here? And Dana White says no. He says, don't you think that maybe it would be helpful to talk to him before <laughs> you just trash the guy? And Dana White also again said no. Yeah. And that was just incredible to say like that this guy who has been such a huge superstar for you and you're instantly going to fly off the handle before you even bother to try to figure out why you're mad at him. Uh, I don't know. I, you don't have to be a sensitive guy to remember that and to kind of think, well, 
who else is at the UFC now? That's the person I want to deal with. Uh, I don't want to talk to that guy anymore. Well, Ben, as we transition to the just saying stuff portion of the co-main event podcast before we sign off for this week, I guess I will, I will say this. If you think back to round number one of this show, when I asked you if Conor McGregor and the UFC were headed for a showdown, if he beats Nate Diaz this weekend, I guess I'm hashtag just saying if Conor McGregor wins a fight in mid-August and George St. Pierre will return on New Year's Eve, dot, 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 I'm just saying. What's your just saying stuff for this That's week? That's it, huh? You're going to end this, I think you you're can, end this on dot, dot, dot. You're picking up what I'm putting down. Okay. Are you not? I guess I am. The biggest fight out there, the biggest fight on the planet of Earth that you could make. There you go. Have it on a barge halfway in between Montreal and Dublin. All right. People are on their own to get their boats out there. But I think we all know that if you are a fan of George St. Pierre or Conor McGregor, you probably have your own boat. Naturally. There you go. All right. Just start lighting money on fire and bailing it overboard. Well, Chad, I guess this week I'm just saying, you see uh, that on MMA Junkie, I believe you appeared on MMA Junkie Radio, uh, UFC uh, flyweight, John Herrera talking about uh, how he might have to take a break from MMA because he can't afford to keep training. Has some debts, basically has to focus on uh, making some money, having a job. Uh, it sounds really kind of broken up about it, uh, that he says he has to get his life together and try to provide for his son, uh, and then he'll be able to pay his coaches and, quote, make my way back into the gym. Uh, and then, you know, it's just kind of a sad thing, a sad state of affairs for a guy who is in the UFC to be like, hey, I'm in the premier organization in the world for my sport, and yet I cannot afford to continue doing it. Like an NFL player saying, like, I can't afford the gas to come to practice today. Uh, so therefore, I'm going to have to do something else for a living. Um, and then this quote, when he when he's asked if he feels like he's been uh, shortchanged in his career as a fighter. Shortchanged? I wouldn't call it that. I would just call it part of the business. And like any mixed martial artist, we just have to be ready for when that call comes. I'm just saying, there's a lot about what's wrong with this sport wrapped up in that statement right there. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happened at UFC 202 and look ahead to a stretch where the UFC does a show every weekend between now and I think mid-October. Sounds about Something right. like that. So uh, no shortage of stuff to talk about during the next few weeks. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So whose boat should we take to the fight? Yours or mine? I assume we would take both of our boats and tie them together okay. to create Party Central out there at UFC 209. Uh, I should tell you right now, I want to say my boat is stolen.